Hey everyone, what's up? It's Jeff from Honor Combat and Survival, and welcome to podcast episode number 243. Now, of course, we always talk about the tactics you should learn to protect yourself from the criminals that are walking our streets. But I think I've also beat my chest hard enough over the time that you've known me that the odds are drastically against you in a real attack, because the criminal is already in action. And we all know that action beats reaction every time, right? Now, the key is to stop the attack before it even happens, and one of the best ways to do that is to project yourself as such a hard target that criminals take one look at you and decide it's literally too dangerous to make you their victim. And this week, you're going to learn exactly how to become that hard target and the tactics that you can use to defend yourself when nothing will stop your attacker from targeting you. It's all coming right up, but first, don't forget to grab this week's free show notes with a handy-dandy one-page cheat sheet covering all the main points from today's episode. All you have to do is go on over to www.mcsmagazine.com slash 243 and download it all absolutely free. And now, let's talk tactics. Tactical firearms training, urban survival, close quarters combat. This, this is another podcast to help you better prepare for any threat you may face in your role as a protector and a patriot. This is Modern Combat and Survival. Every day you hear it from reality-based self-defense guys and other people whose job it is supposedly to teach you how to defend yourself. The average thug on the street is a methed out, coked out, 400 pound bodybuilding biker who's seven feet tall and who beats up little old ladies and puppies for breakfast. Hide your kids, hide your wife. He's coming for you and he's going to break every bone in your body. And that's why you have to buy so-and-so's patented fear no man, eight step system, blah, 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 blah. Now, as absurd as that sounds, and even if you're tired of hearing it, it's actually not that far off from reality. You see, that's because the average street predator makes victimizing people his job. He looks for easy targets, and he's experienced at using violence because he's done it many times before. It comes easy to him because he's practiced it for real. The only thing that's going to stop him or deter him is if you look like a harder target, the kind of dangerous person that, if he attacks, will make his life a lot more difficult. But it's not just about macho showmanship. You must have the skills to back it up. You, my friend, must become dangerous. And that's exactly why we're here today. Hello, everyone. This is Jeff Anderson, editor from Modern Combat and Survival Magazine and executive director of the New World Patriot Alliance with another podcast to help you better prepare for any threat you may face in your role as a protector and a patriot. And today we welcome back someone who really is dangerous, Mike Gillette. Mike, welcome back to the program, man. Hey, Jeff. Thanks. Great to be with you. Always good to have you on, man. Um, listen, guys, if you haven't if you haven't heard any of our other interviews with Mike or in the New World Patriot Alliance workshops that we've done, um, I've known Mike for a long time. He's one of the guys that I truly admire in this business as someone who really walks the talk. He is a former Army paratrooper. He's a SWAT commander, former SWAT commander and chief of police, whose unique training and background also made him one of the most credentialed executive protection specialists around for several high-ranking CEOs and celebrities, the likes of which are none other than Sylvester Stallone. Now, he's also a member of the Martial Arts Master Hall of Fame and counterterrorism consultant to the Department of Homeland Security with over 25 different use of force and weapon systems instructors that designations to his name. Now, you can learn more about Mike and his training by going to his website online at www.realselfdefensetactics.com. So, Mike, when we're talking about, like, really becoming more dangerous to be able to better prepare yourself and project, project more of our confidence out to the criminals out there so you don't get attacked. I mean, there's an old saying that's like, if you if you look like food, you will be eaten. 
So what are some of the, the most kind of like fatal mistakes that you see people doing out there that really make them look like food for the criminals? What are some of the just the, the, the daily things that people do that make them more vulnerable? Well, I I like how you put that. I, I like the food analogy, you know, I, because it's uh, it's easy to think of, you know, bad guys basically just, you know, consuming whom they can consume. And uh, I sort of categorize th- these mistakes or these problem areas into three general areas, and I'll, I'll let you know what those are, and then I'll sort of break them down individually. So I, I call them inattentiveness, submissiveness, and softness. Now, what we're talking about, of course, is the perception of each of those. So it's the the bad guy's perception of inattentiveness or his perception of submissiveness or his perception of softness, and, and I'll explain that last one when we get to it. But inattentiveness is huge. We are in a uh, distraction-rich uh, environment at all times, a stimulus-rich environment, and it's easy to pay attention to things that won't be helpful if we're potentially being um, assessed for our uh, attractiveness as a victim. And I think one of the problems with uh, attentiveness or just awareness in general is people deal with it in a, in a very subjective sort of way, uh, meaning that, uh, hey, when I'm in a dangerous situation, then I'll be careful. But right now, I'm just walking across the target parking lot. And we seem to decide for ourselves what we think is going to be dangerous, but we're not actually in charge of the danger designation process. That's the domain of the bad guy. And what's funny, Jeff, is back in my bodyguard days, there would be times when a client who uh, would sort of try to beg off on some of his protection because let's be frank, it's weird having people around you all the time protecting you from the world. It's just an odd thing. And it can feel sort of claustrophobic to the client. And sometimes we'd have these uh, conversations and the client would say, you know, guys, uh, I feel kind of safe tonight. I'd like to just go do such and such. You know, I don't care if you feel safe. Now, you don't talk to a client like that. But in my head, I'm thinking, I don't care if you feel safe. How you feel has no bearing on absolutely anything, you know. So the inattentiveness issue really has to do with we don't think we're in danger, uh, and therefore we act as if we aren't, and that's what can easily put us in danger. Now, here's sort of an anecdote to go with just that point, the point of inattentiveness. I used to teach surveillance detection. I used to teach it a lot. I used to teach it to uh, executive protection teams in particular. And when you teach surveillance detection, you teach how to move into an area with, you know, with stealth and discretion and how to basically analyze that environment for everything that's going on. And every time we would run surveillance detection exercises, uh, you know, all of these guys are, are having to take notes or, or just remembering things. Sometimes they're taking notes on their cell phone, just trying to make it look like they're texting, but they're actually documenting, you know, who they're seeing, what they're doing and so forth. What was interesting is when we would come back together in a group and we would debrief uh, the drill that we had just run, they would share stuff that had nothing to do with the drill because there would always be role players who had been tasked to do certain suspicious types of things. And, you know, everyone was supposed to pick them out of the crowd and they generally always would, but they would also pick out other things. Uh, 
they would pick out people who were pickpockets. They would pick out people who were shoplifting. And they just assumed that these were all people who were part of the exercise. Gillette just must have brought these people in so that they could also, you know, uh, allow the students uh, to practice their observation skills. But, of course, they had nothing to do with the exercise. It's just it goes back to one of the great police training films of all time. Are you familiar with the movie Hot Fuzz? <laughs> okay. Hot Fuzz. Right? You know, it's, it's the Simon Pegg comedy. It's a, it's a ridiculous movie. But there's one thing that the lead character says to a fellow police officer, uh, and, and they patrol this, you know, very seemingly quiet uh, British village, is something's always going on. So let the words of actor Simon Pegg sort of, you know, echo through your mind. Something always is going on. That should help cure us of any inattentiveness we sort of complacently fall into. There's always something to notice. I don't care where you are. I don't care what time of day it is. So the inattentiveness, that just has to be cured. The only person who can cure us of that is ourselves. So, And that was just one. The next few won't take nearly as long. So the next one is submissiveness. This is um, something that really goes to the fact that, you know, sort of in your description, uh, you know, bad guys are practiced. Now, they may not be able to sophisticatedly articulate how they do what they do, but they do it and they do it at a high level. They're extremely good at reading people. And basically, they read people with the intent of uh, filtering out potential problems. A potential problem is someone like you, someone who is paying attention, someone who is going to give them considerable grief if they make a mistake of approaching you with untoward intent. So anything about the the demeanor, you know, we're, as we walk along, you know, are we looking down or do we just have that face that makes us look as though we could be easily influenced? It's not just bad guys that do this. Really good salesmen are very effective at sizing up the personality of the person they're sitting across the table from. And they get a pretty good idea of what type of car they might be able to talk you into just because they're persuasive. So inattentiveness, number one, submissiveness or the apparent look of submissiveness. And then there's what I call softness. Now, softness is not necessarily what it sounds like. It doesn't mean that, you know, you're physically soft. Hey, there are some physically soft people who will jack you up. Um, it's not that. Softness is a term that I use to describe somebody who just appears to be physically out of tune. And if you are someone who has kind of an, an unsteady or a physically awkward gait, your posture is just off. There are some people who you can look at them and they don't look like they're comfortable in their own bodies. And again, it's a subjective thing, but it's something that bad guys will pick up on. You need to sort of focus on how you stand, how you walk. You know, every one of your movements should be smooth and deliberate. So inattentiveness, submissiveness, and softness, those are sort of the three traps that we can fall into, and they're all curable. We just have to pay attention to them. Yeah, I think, you know, the other thing I think it's really important about this is uh, for people that really understand is that it's not necessarily like beefing up your exterior to come off that way. Like you said, I mean, somebody can be soft and, and actually be hard on the inside and, and be a real uh, showstopper for the bad guy. Likewise, um, I remember like I, I've been I think I've talked about this maybe on maybe New World Patriot or, or other workshops that we've done. But, you know, I was suckered by a guy um, at Grand Central Station in New York 
Um, and I was um, basically it was a con that this guy did. And I was in the army at the time. I I looked at the army part. I was jacked. I had like my army shirt. You know, my I was you could tell I was a GI. And I, I saw this guy kind of targeting me and spotting me when I was in line for tickets and things like that. I kept seeing him look at me and I was like and I was very much I had that exterior like um, don't screw with me. Um, like I had a tough exterior. I mean, I was, a, you know, I was in 10th Mountain Division. Like I walked around like basically with a chip on my shoulder. So it, I, I projected hardness, but this guy saw that, hey, I was a GI and what did he use as a con? He was also a, uh, a guy who was headed out on orders to Germany. He knew all the right things to talk with me about. Uh, long story short, I ended up handing the guy over like $150 cash for something. He, it didn't even make sense. Like if I told you, you would start, you would laugh hysterically at how stupid I was. But it's just to, it's just to show people that there is always an avenue. It's not just about machismo on the outside. It's about what's on yeah. the inside. Yeah. You know, great. I like that. Yeah. yeah Mike, I, I'm, uh, I, I'm a firm believer that as much, as much as you want to project this outer exterior of, of hardness and, and being, somebody's more dangerous that it really like your exterior is oftentimes um, a reflection of what's on the inside. So if you are scared, if you're naturally scared of somebody, it's going to, it's going to be shown in your face. It's going to be. So, um, you know, really it's, it's about your own self doubt is going to be projected. Your own self confidence is going to be projected. And that's very difficult for a lot of people when you're talking about being, you know, facing somebody who is an experienced felon, potentially, you know, bigger, stronger than you. They are a criminal. They are violent. And we're not used to living in that underground society that they live in there. So, um, however, it really is important to be able to have that, that kind of self-confidence so that it does naturally project out of here. So what are some of your best tips for overcoming self-doubt when it comes to a confrontation, um, overcoming that fear? How do I build up self-confidence that there's no need for me to um, like I can't really can truly project that hardness to people. Mm-hmm. That's a really good question, um, and it's a very deep question. So I I would start off uh, you know sort of addressing the fear aspect. Now, fear will manifest as hesitancy, and hesitancy mostly manifests as freezing. And that is a, a dangerous place to be, and which doesn't mean that, you know, you, you freeze in place for a long period of time. If you freeze for a couple of seconds, that may be as long as it takes to, you know, flatten you to the pavement. So hesitancy is really a, a lack of what I call foresight or a lack of knowing. And in this case, it's knowing yourself. And the hesitancy comes. You know, and, and the hesitancy fuels the fear and the fear fuels the hesitancy and that, that starts to sort of permeate the look of a person. And it all has to do with if you haven't thought about what you might do in X situation, you will never figure out what to do in the middle of X situation. Or you can't solve the most complex problem you'll ever face at the height of that problem. So to handle that, I sort of break it down in three steps. And number one is is almost philosophical, and I call that program your moral GPS. So to do that, to program your moral GPS, this is a metaphor, you, you don't buy one, um, you, you have to ask yourself two questions. Number one, what are you willing to fight for? 
What are you willing to fight for? Because if you never thought about that, you won't come up with a good answer, you know, un- under duress. And then the second question you have to ask yourself is, under what circumstances are you willing to fight? Now, number one, uh, part of that answer should include, you know, legally appropriate circumstances, you know, because we don't want to be stupid. But what are you willing to fight for and under what circumstances are you willing to fight? That is the first stage. Before we get to tactics and tools and, and all of that stuff, we have to know ourselves. And we have to figure that out ahead of time. Because once you have that, then you have sort of that internal clarity that helps mitigate things like hesitancy. Now, once we get to that point, then there's stage two, which is simply determine your tactical game plan, which only has to do with what tools and tactics are you willing to commit to this effort? Okay. So uh, there are people who, hey, I'll fight. I may pick up a stick, I may throw a rock, but, uh, you know, maybe I've got a thing about guns. Okay, good. Figure yourself out and then figure out what response plan makes the most sense based on whatever restraints you might be placing on yourself. So that's the tools and tactics phase. So first off, you know, we have to figure where we're at sort of, you know, more morally, philosophically. And then two, what tools and tactics will we commit to that effort? And then number three, you have to be willing to enter the forest. Okay. Now, you don't just run into the forest. We enter the forest prepared and alert. Okay. How are we prepared? We're prepared because we thought about it. We figured ourselves out. We're alert because we have determined our tools and tactics. And above all, when we enter the forest, we have to be willing. That's the big piece. Are you willing to honor what it is you said was important to you? Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, totally. So it uh it's it's a it's simply a question of understanding yourself and then once you have that self-understanding you equip yourself appropriately based on who you are and what you're willing to do. And then three, go out and live your life. Enter the forest, you know, go go be you, go do stuff and if there's a problem, solve the problem. If there isn't a problem, good for you. Yeah, that, make, that makes total sense, and I want to go ahead, and I'm going to dive deeper into that actually here in just a bit. Um, but listen, everybody, we're talking with Mike Gillette of RealSelfDefenseTactics.com about how to become a harder target and actually dangerous to the violent criminals that are on our streets. And we have a lot more coming up, including small daily changes that can have a big impact on your ability to stay safe and protect those you love, simple self-defense techniques anyone can use to fight back against even a bigger, stronger attacker, and then also practical training tips for becoming the hard target that you were born to be. All this and more coming right up, but first, check out this special message. Imagine staring up at a six foot nine, 350 pound biker dude, rage in his eyes, ready to cram a beer bottle down your throat as payback for bumping into him. Would you know exactly what to do? Without cowering in fear, without begging for mercy, without getting stomped to the floor and beaten while your family watches in horror? You will now with this simple three-step plan. One, don't take your family to biker bars. That's really kind of stupid, isn't it? Two, harden your mind with bulletproof warrior confidence. And three, master your own secret bag of shockingly powerful fight tricks. Waiting for you and your free DVD you can claim now at DefeatLargerAttackers.com. In a real fight, you don't have the option of losing. Not when your life or the safety of your family hiding behind you is on the line. 
You need to know exactly what to do in those first few seconds of an attack and end it quickly and walk away with your life, your loved ones, and your pride intact. In this free DVD, you'll discover the street fighting secrets for how to knock a bigger, stronger man head first into the pavement with brutal, unstoppable power and speed regardless of your size, strength, or even if you've never been in a fight before in your life. Claim your free DVD now while this offer is still available at www.defeatlargerattackers.com and unleash your true potential to kick ass. And now, back to the show. Okay, we're back with Mike Gillette of RealSelfDefenseTactics.com, talking about ways that you can both project yourself as a harder target to criminals out there who may have you in their sights, as well as how to fight back if you are forced to defend yourself. Now, we have a lot more to get to, so let's go ahead and jump back into our interview now. So, Mike, I think you're the, pers- the perfect person to ask this to, because I-, I know that in dealing with, like, in your executive protection jobs that you've had and dealing with your clients, a lot of times the um, in, in assessing the threats before you even build out a plan for how you're going to protect them, a lot of it comes down to probably a lot of the mistakes that they're making, things that they're doing that are unsafe, that might be daily habits that they have that they don't even realize are leaving them vulnerable. And so I kind of want to flip that around. So, so what are um, what are some of the habits that we can that we can actually develop in ourselves that can become daily habits that will actually make us better prepared? Okay. Uh, great question. I've, I've got a couple of, uh, ways of coming at that. One is sort of a, a, a set of, of physical things that are pretty simple. And then, uh, there's sort of a, a mental problem solving process that, uh, I'd like to talk about sort of towards the end because everything else sort of builds up to that, if I could. So the, um, the key going back to this, this idea of, you know, how, how do we project the, um, the exterior that we want, you know, because it's a lot easier to not fight than to have to fight. And if we can not fight and we're not fighting because we are projecting the, the right, uh, you know, vibe, essence, what, whatever uh, you would characterize that as, that, that's a win for us. So one of the things that uh, I talk about a lot and the sort of the advantage for your listeners is, I do a lot, I mean, a lot of women's self-defense training still to this day. And it's just, you know, it's something that uh, I feel strongly about. So everything that uh, works for women just works better for men. So a lot of the things that I tell to women, they'll work for women. But it, but if you're a guy and you're a little bit, you know, uh, bringing a bit more uh, physically to the table, it's it's actually even uh, easier for you to to make good on all of these. And one of the things I talk about is walk strong, look strong, think strong. Walk strong, look strong, think strong. That sounds really simple. But here's where that came from. There was an interesting study done uh, by a couple of psychologists. This is probably 15-ish years ago now. And I think once upon a time they, they even published a, a summary of it in psychology today. But two psychologists took um, these these video clips of pedestrians in various urban areas. And they showed, all edited together, just kind of this montage of of random pedestrians. And they showed them to a group of uh, incarcerated offenders. And the offenders were sex offenders and, uh, you know, armed armed robbers. 
And here's what happened. The, the same video shown to this uh, panorama of offenders. And the offenders consistently picked out the same types of victims. Now, what they didn't do is they didn't all pick out females. They didn't all pick out the small guys. It sort of varied. Yeah, there were some females, but there were some guys. Some of the guys were larger. And granted, the the criminals weren't always able to uh, artfully speak to why, but the commonalities uh, were, were very interesting. And a lot of it had to do with how people were walking, okay, which, again, is why I was talking like walk strong. And there were some some things that they would point out. And they would point to the video. You see this. You see this. And the the proctors of the study sort of uh, extracted several variables, which were stride, rate, fluidity, wholeness, posture, and gaze, okay, which sounds kind of academic. But basically, it comes back to if uh, someone had sort of an exaggerated stride, whether it was like really long or really short, they dragged their feet or shuffled their feet, um, they drew attention to themselves. Those were the kinds of, of physical cues that drew the attention of the bad guys. And also, if the people were walking sort of out of step with other people at the same time. So if, if you and I and, and maybe eight other people are at a crosswalk in Times Square and the signal turns green, everybody steps off, and I'm lagging behind a little bit, that just sticks out. So if if you stick with, with the collective, that makes you harder to sort of intervene. It, it's harder, you know, you had that great example at Grand Central Station. You know, if you were a part of a group, it would have been harder for that guy to be persuasive to you because there would have been other critical ears, you know, sort of on the outside fil- filtering. And, you know, people know that, whether it's a con or it's going to be a potential violent assault, you know, or just a perch snatching, the 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 closer you stick with the herd, you know, it's, it's always the slow animal on the nature film that gets killed. Right. So rate was also part of it. And then there was fluidity, which really seems to speak to how do you move when you walk? Do you look like you are a, a physically whole person? You know, is, is your body a coherent coordinated entity? And that's a that's a really hard thing to describe, but it's a very easy thing to see. You know, you can look at video and you can pick somebody out who just has sort of an awkward way to them. And a bad guy doesn't necessarily know if, you know, does this person have some minor physical infirmity? You know, is it a limp? You know, do they have like a bad knee? But there's something that catches their eye about the movement characteristics. You know, are they just a, a little bit stiff? Sometimes people who uh, have some uh, mental special needs, there's a correlative uh, batch of, of physical cues. And obviously, those are people who are more exploitable. So the bad guy looks at this sort of holistic view, and then it sort of finishes off with posture and gaze. You know, slumped over, which kind of feeds into, you know, do, do they look a bit submissive? Slumped over is also the natural posture of somebody who's looking at their smartphone. Where are they looking? A lot of crime victims will say things after the fact, like, the bad guy came out of nowhere. Well, here's the thing. Other than David Copperfield, nobody comes out of nowhere. 
right? They appeared to come out of nowhere because they weren't paying attention to what was going on around them. Suddenly, there they were. So simply figuring out where you should be orienting, you know, your gaze is a big deal, which doesn't mean that, you know, you have to mad dog everybody around you, which, you know, in some circles can be seen as confrontational, but you can pay attention. And if you're paying attention, bad guys are paying attention. Bad guys always look at who's looking. And it's the people who aren't that tend to have overtures made to them. So in the in the bad guy parlance, that's really the only time that I'm aware of uh, where some academics actually sat down with a group of various violent offenders, you know, representing different types or four categories of crimes, and had them look at and identify, you know, what's your filtration process? How do you assess, you know, who among many is going to have a, an encounter with you? So, and none of that had to do with who's jacked, you know, who has a, a tap out T-shirt on or anything like that. Yeah. Nothing against tap out T-shirts. <laughs> Yeah. So it, it all has to do with, with a lot of very, uh, you know, sort of subtle cues, but they're all curable. Okay. If you walk weird, um, and you don't know, well, ask somebody. And if you walk weird because someone told, Hey, you know, yeah, you do walk, you know, walk kind of off. There's something about that. Okay. Fix it. You know, if, if actors can do it, we can do it. Okay. If, if a non-physically impressive actor can simply just change some basic things about how they locomote you know, a, across the pavement, then you can too. You know, just think about, you know, who, uh, you know, who out there seems, you know, maybe it's, it's Jet Li or Jason Statham, you know, who, who has kind of just a, a strong, you know, confident walk. Okay. Study it, you know, get on YouTube, look at a couple of clips. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to kind of stand like that. I'm going to, you know, walk like that. It doesn't mean you have to start, you know, doing their workout regimen. Not that that would be a bad thing. But a lot of people who aren't physical right now get very down on themselves about that. No, well, it's just hopeless for me. I'm just going to get my ass kicked every time I go out. It's like, no, pay attention, you know, and walk strong, look strong. And that's just by looking around, you know, and think strong thoughts. Think about, you know, this is what I'm going to do when, you know, don't don't be uh, in that fog that so many people who get victimized are in. You know, I think you bring up a really good point also that I, I think we don't understand about criminals in that um, they know. Be, and I'm talking about criminals that really like they grew up on, you know, hard times, low income, out on the streets. You know, you're fighting for what, you know, for you, you know, maybe survival is. Well, I mean, in some cases survival. Right. But you're basically you're in the jungle and you yeah. have to learn how to survive in the jungle. And so I think one of the things that that we can take as a. um Kind of a, a, a boost of confidence, if you will, is that those home, those people have already discovered that little people can do really vicious, really vicious things, um, especially if they've been in the prison population where it's like it's a microcosm of, of violence and, you know, that that kind of you always have to be on the edge. I would say little guys that are going to survive learn how to survive like if you're if you have no choice you're going to learn if, if you've got right. to get mean and tough and dirty you're going to do that so i think that it's it's a help for us for people to realize that if you are older if you are a woman if you are smaller in stature that doesn't count you out 
Because if you're projecting these other things that criminals mm-hmm. are are used to looking for, and they spot them, and they're not going to necessarily say, oh, "Wow, hmm, this person looks like they've got a secret that they're not telling me," you know. But they're a small person, so I'm sure it'll be fine. Right. They're going to move on to another harder target that might even be a bigger person, but they just know from the way that they project themselves that they're that they're going to be an easier target. Great point. Can I speak to that just a moment? Yeah, sure. Okay. So uh, on that topic, um, long before I'm, I'm going to use a, a, a famous bad guy example. Long before uh, Charles Manson was a famous bad guy, he was a career criminal. He was a career criminal as a juvenile. He topped out at five foot four when he was seventeen. And he was being uh, placed among adult offenders because he had just sort of exhausted the resources that, that you know, existed at the time. Um, he w- uh, they first put him in. Uh, it, it was like it was a state facility. Uh, it was for adults, but it was for like nonviolent adult offenders. They had to keep him away from the general population. Seventeen years old, five foot four. He was deemed too dangerous. He scared people, and it wasn't because of his physicality. I mean, it's not like he was a buffed-out 5'4". He was a tiny 5'4", always was. But he had willingness, and it was as plain, you know, as the expression on his face. So uh, hopefully that's not too weird of an example, but you can be very small, but you can still radiate the type of uh, you know, message that you want to. Yeah. So it's not about the physique, although the, you know, the physique is great. You know, it's always good to show up, you know, strong and, and fit, you know, highly recommend it. But, you know, even for those of us that, you know, take that very seriously, every day uh, that goes by, I get a little further from my physical peak. You know, I'm going to be uh, in a week, I'm going to be 57. Now, I still train hard, but, you know, me at 57 was not me at 47 you know, and on and on it goes. So, you know, you can't always count on that. And even me, you know, whatever that physical peak was, I still wasn't the biggest guy in the room. I'm physically, you know, average size. So it's not that. It's it's the willingness. It's the message that I send through, you know, any number of all, all of these sort of subtle variables. Yeah, I'm trained. I'm experienced. Uh, I'm I'm conversant in violence. And some of that just sort of comes across in the exterior. Now, you don't have to have all of that to radiate that, to communicate that, but you do have to have that that self-dialogue that I talked about at the beginning of our conversation today. You figure yourself out, and then you can figure out the kind of message that you want to send to the world. You know, a message of, hey, I'm a good guy, but if you want to do bad guy stuff to me, uh, I, I can speak that too. Yeah. You know, yeah. But as needed. And but then I go on with my good guy life. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, I think when it Mike, when it comes to, um, again, that projection of self-confidence, and it really does like you have to back it up um, with skills of some type. And of course, when you have confidence in your ability to defend yourself, then like when, when you just know you you can take care of of, of, uh, of problems when they when they present themselves. Like that confidence does come out. Um, and, and I have that just from because I've trained so very much. But I think also a lot of people have a false sense of it 
because they own a gun and they because they carry a gun or they have some other weapon on them as if it's a magic talisman. And so, you know, I really we, we talked before about how you have to really figure out your plan ahead of time so that you're not trying to, like, build a plan in the middle of a crisis. And we have to understand that when when we're targeted for a a, a crime, when we're like a robbery, um, an assault of some kind, that the bad guy who's looking to ambush us doesn't want to fight. So they've already, you know, we talk about the OODA loop, you know, um, observe, orient, decide, and act in order to protect yourself. The criminal has already done all of that by the time we even know that there's any, we even have any sort of, you know, inkling that anything is coming. And so I think um, um, we have to be able to, one, have your plan ahead of time so that you already know um, once once you observe something, you can you can quickly get to action as quickly as possible. Um, but again, you have to be able to back this up with skill. So if I if I realize that I'm going to have to understand that I'm being attacked, probably in the middle of me being attacked, I have to be able to fight to my gun, or I have to be able to fight back against this person if I'm forced to. So I'm not expecting you to make everybody out there a black belt in the matter of the next five minutes of your answer, but um, I especially want to ask you this because I think as, um, you know, I talk to a lot of guys about self-defense and a lot of them have, um, they are in martial arts. They've trained in martial arts all their lives. They teach classes in martial arts. They start with day one beginners in class and they're teaching these people how to go through a fighting system or they're teaching them a technique or so. But as a high level um, bodyguard, such as yourself, um, what you teach your teams or what they have to know is something that, that you have to, you've already, I mean, I know you, bodyguards are already vigilant and you can hopefully see that attack coming well in advance, but you have to be able to put down that attack extremely quickly. So can, if you can, just give us a few of like your go-to like first moves. And I know it's, it's dependent upon, you know, what weapon they have and things like that, but what are the most effective strikes or moves or techniques that when you've got somebody right up in your in that bad breath zone that can quickly either get you the space to get to your gun, put this person down. Like what are those goji things that have you found that you found to be the most um, effective over the years? Okay. Uh really good question. And uh I, I like how you prefaced it. Uh you know, a lot of people, you know, once they get a gun, uh it's like, okay, I've solved my problems. Well, the problem is not every problem is a gun problem, you know, and hey, I'm sightseeing. Uh, I'm in Times Square. You know, we're, we're you know, we're going to go see a show. Well, you don't have your gun, not legally anyway. So uh, how are you going to solve those problems? Well, you're, you're going to solve them with, you know, whatever you have with you. So with that, if I was going to recommend a couple of uh, very simple to execute techniques, uh, these would probably be the three. Uh, the first one would be what I refer to as a clavicle strike, okay, so like the collarbone. And that it, that's an overhead strike. So if you've ever spiked a volleyball, you can you can do this, okay? So it's, it's, it's a big wind, and what's nice about it is we generally protect, you know, from, from forward, you know, out. 
we generally aren't protecting up here. So if my forearm comes down, and that's a long weapon, so if I'm a little close, I'm a little far, I'm still going to hit your collarbone. It takes about nine and a half pounds of pressure to crack your collarbone. I could actually reach out and just crush it with my hand. I can crack somebody's collarbone with my hands. Um, but most people won't stand still for you to do that. But you can hit it, and that overhead arc, it's hard for the eye to track. It's very simple to do, and because you're – You've got that big uh, arcing shoulder swing. You actually get way more uh, impact power than you actually need to do the damage. Now, the interesting thing about the clavicle strike is, A, it's disproportionately painful. Now, we can't depend on pain because, you know, bad guys are tough. Uh, if you look at my own YouTube channel, there's me, you know, getting hit with all kinds of different objects. And, I mean, some of us are freaks, and, and you should not count on pain. But there's a dysfunction aspect to it, too. If you crack the clavicle with, you know, some, some emphasis, suddenly the ability to raise the arm past a 45-degree angle on that side of the body becomes very difficult. And I tell you, Jeff, I would rather fight a one-armed man given the choice. Mm-hmm. So that's that's just, boom, simple overhead shot. That's, that's your, your, your volleyball spike. The next one, uh, and I would do that like with my power side. So, like, I'm right-handed, so that would be like my right cross. That's how I would hit. The other uh, technique is a hand technique, and I would throw that with my lead hand, and that would basically be a horizontal, a big whipping shot. It would be an ear slap, cup hand over the ear. Now, what's nice about either shot, the clavicle strike or the ear slap, is they look pretty low intensity to the average person. And, you know, yeah, technically you're injuring somebody if you crack their clavicle, it's minor. Kids crack their clavicles on the playground all the time. And what do you do? You go to the doctor, says you cracked your clavicle. You know, it'll get better. So it's not that serious. The ear slap, you know, yeah, you can rupture an eardrum, but even if you don't, it's still extremely painful. It impairs balance and it sets up anything else you might choose to do very nicely. And just all the hip torque that you can muster, the long whip and that cupped hand pow. And, uh, then you can, be set up for the third technique. Now, when I teach it, I'm in the room with you. I call it a swing kick, and that's just because we're swinging a leg, but since we don't have that advantage, I'm I'm basically from the chest up. Uh, It's a soccer kick. So if you swing either heel, okay, and, and you want to orient your heel towards the opponent's shin, you swing it in hard. They can't block it. They won't see it coming. It's like your, your eyes can't track it. If you and I basically stand together in a clinch, I can kick you indiscriminately with either leg. I won't lose my balance because if I start to tip, I'll just set my foot down and I'm balanced again. And it's excruciatingly painful. You can also use your heel like a cheese grater. Okay. You know, you got that block of cheddar cheese and you want to slide it down that metal cheese grater. Okay. So I'm going to kick you at the top of your shin, which is bad. And then I'm just going to take that heel and I'm just going to scrape all the cheese right off. It's metaphorical cheese right off the front of your chin. It's brutal. And if you think one's bad, the third one is ridiculous. Now, now we're drawing blood and the bad guy literally can't do anything about it. You know, if you lose your balance, okay, stomp his foot on the way down. So those are three striking techniques, you know, and somewhere in the midst of that, I would do something that I see almost nobody do. Now, because I do feats of strength, I've got some you know, disproportionately strong hands. 
I will reach out and touch the side of somebody's neck, either hand, either side, doesn't matter, and I will start to curl my fingers in as though I'm making a fist, but I'm grabbing the flesh on the side of your neck. I can literally walk somebody around with one hand doing that. It's bad, hmm. you know. And uh, for females, it works great because they tend to have a little bit of fingernail action. This is extremely sensitive, and it's nobody protects it. It's like I'm, I'm not thinking about people just randomly grabbing the side of my head. But if I grab you and then I send in that ear strike, if I grab you and then I send in the clavicle strike, now I basically I'm stabilizing the target. I'm making sure you're there at the point of impact. If I grab both sides of your neck while I'm destroying your shins, yeah, it's, it's rough. And you don't need to be taught how to do it. All you have to know is that it exists. Just by my description alone, you can start wrecking people. That's how simple the stuff is. It's easy to beat people up. You know, beating people up artfully like Jackie Chan, now that takes practice. You know, <laughs> if, I, if I fight, it's going to look like chaos. I'm not good enough to make it look pretty. I love it. That's the, that's the quote of the day. It's easy to beat people up. I love it. <laughs> well, listen, Mike, um, I, I think what I'd like to do is leave everybody here with a little bit of um, – kind of like a practical exercise that they can do. So for, I think more, we've talked about right. more like the projection side of it. Like how do you, how do you project that you are a, a hard enough target that nobody's going to mess with you? No, no criminal is, they're going to move on to another person. So what is like a practical exercise that somebody can do? Um, we've identified a lot of things, but is there a way to really make this practice rather than just, okay, I know I'm, 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 I shouldn't be doing these things and I probably should be doing those things other than like, Go do them. Is there anything that somebody can use as a tool to make this more second nature for them? Well, Jeff, what I'd like to do is actually speak about that that last uh, thing when I said enter the forest. Because mm-hmm. you know, we, we sort of talked about, uh, you know, how, how we want to sort of physically represent ourselves. And we want to make sure that our intention, you know, comes clearly through our demeanor. But we still have to go into the forest. We still have to go to the jungle, to, to use your example. So in going into the jungle, how, how can we navigate that world uh, most effectively? And I've, I've got a, a very simple process for that. So I'd like to share that if I may. So here's uh, the first, anytime you enter the jungle, and, you know, the jungle could be Disneyland, it could be the Mall of America, it could be Times Square, uh, it you know, could be a rodeo. It doesn't matter. The first thing that you have to ask yourself is wherever you are, it's an environment. So ask yourself, what is the purpose of the environment I am in? Okay. So let's say you're in Vegas. All right. And you're in, uh, we'll say the MGM Grand. Okay. That, that's, uh, that's a hard one to miss. It's right by the airport. You, if you've ever been to Vegas, you've at least been past it. So MGM Grand, huge. Venue. What is the purpose of that venue? Well, uh, we'll just say entertainment slash recreation, but it's different than the entertainment slash recreation of Disneyland. Yes. Mm-hmm, right. The way people enjoy themselves at Disneyland looks different at the MGM Grand than it does at Disneyland. So, uh, and it's because of the types of activities that are occurring within uh, that, that space. So what is the purpose of the environment? Now, we ask ourselves that to accomplish a step that uh, the Secret Service refers to as normalization. Okay, You have to understand where it is that you are and its function, 
in order to normalize that that environment. And, and that simply refers to a process by which you you assess it. Now, you only probably have a, a, a few moments to do that, but a few moments is enough. If it's Friday night, you've just checked in uh, at the MGM Grand, and now you're on the casino floor, just look around. Just kind of get a sense for the rhythm, get a sense uh, of, you know, the, the population density, how are they moving, how are they standing, what do you see, what do you hear. And from there, if you're trying to figure out, well, who might be a threat, okay, then you ask yourself the next question. Who, if, if we've already figured out what's the purpose of the environment I'm in, then who does not seem to match that purpose? Okay, so if we're talking about the MGM Grand, people are there, you know, have, they're having drinks, maybe they're, they're having snacks. Uh, if they're in the restaurants, obviously they're, they're in the restaurants. But if they're on the casino floor, most people are there, you know, for the games and, you know, to be seen and, and to drink. Okay, is there anybody in that environment that isn't doing any of those things? That's the person you pay attention to. Hmm. Now, how, how, how do we know? Well, there, there's, there's two, uh, broad categories. So what's the purpose of the environment? Who doesn't fit? And how do we know they don't fit? Well, because we assess two things. Number one, we assess their conduct. What are they doing? Which can also be, what aren't they doing? If everybody's doing X and this person is just kind of standing around doing Y, well, that should be something to uh, to notice. And then assess demeanor. How are they acting? Uh, there's a famous photograph uh, taken by surveillance camera near the security area in Boston Logan on 9/11, and it's it's four males. In the front of the group is uh, Mohammed Atta. Okay, so four, four of the 9/11 hijackers. Now they all are clean cut. They all are dressed business casual. Seemingly they're they're just there to uh, you know, get on an airplane and go somewhere. But and of course hindsight is twenty twenty. But if you look at the photograph and you look at their faces, you look at their demeanor, the emotional content of of their exterior as they're simply moving through the airport will give you chills. They actually look like they're on the way to kill a whole bunch of people. Hmm. It's it's just there. And you can imagine if they then go to their gate and they sit down and they happen to sit down, you know, to Mr. And, and Mrs. George Jones from Omaha, Nebraska. And if Mr. and Mrs. George Jones start talking to any of them, how would they be responded to? They'd probably try to try to ignore them. If they were pressed into conversation, they would give very brief, noncommittal answers. No. Yes. Hey, where are you boys from? Where are you all headed? You know, all, all of that sort of stuff going on. They wouldn't be giving anything because. The bad guy has a tendency to think that everyone knows what they're up to because they spend their life sort of paranoid because they're always up to no good, right? So assess conduct, what are they doing or not doing, and then assess demeanor. How are they acting? And it's when conduct and demeanor are out of sync, that's when you really should pay attention. You know, it's uh, it's very easy to lie with our mouth. It's very difficult to lie with our bodies. Actors can do it because they're trained to do it. You know, the average bad guy, if they say one thing but their body says another, the perfect example is, hey, I don't want to hurt you. Now, A, why would they say that? 
And B, if you didn't want to hurt me, you wouldn't be standing this close to me. You know, you wouldn't be like touching my shoulders. So there's something there clearly that doesn't match. So when we enter the jungle, which we should do, we shouldn't, you know, hide away. We should live life. You know, that's the whole purpose of, of learning these things so that we can, you know, live where we want to live and do what we want to do. But to enter the forest, to enter the jungle, we need to understand whatever the jungle happens to be, what's the purpose of that particular jungle? So we go through that normalization process. Is there anyone in the jungle right now that doesn't seem to match that purpose? How will I know? Because I will assess their conduct, what they're doing, and I will assess their demeanor, how they are doing it, how they are acting, Mm -hmm. what seems to be going on here. If those things don't match, I'm going to continue to pay attention until either I'm removed myself from the jungle or they've removed themselves from the jungle or I've decided to call the police. You know what I like about this exercise, Mike, uh, and this is a very simple thing that somebody can do, but other people might, people might think of it as maybe overkill, like, okay, I'm going to spot bad guys out there. But I think that doing this exercise, I think uh, actually will, I think people will spot people that match the description that you're talking about. Like it doesn't, something's not right here. You don't really know what it is, but something's not right. Or hopefully you can describe what it is, but, but what I like about it is you're not going to necessarily go up to that person and confront them and, and do anything like that, but it does reinforce to our brain something that I think is is the opposite of what is is typically getting reinforced, which is the, oh, I'm safer. I haven't been attacked today. I haven't been attacked this month. I haven't been attacked this year. Never been attacked before. So, you know, I might still carry a gun, but it's there um, – and maybe not necessarily believe that you would ever need to use it. And hopefully, and most likely nobody, you know, listening is going to have to. I know we have different levels of operators that listen to our show, but, but for most people, you're not going to get attacked probably because you are projecting this self-confidence and stuff. But here's the thing is that I think if you do your, this exercise and you do spot those people that you would note as suspicious, it reinforces to us that, Hey, wait a minute. I've just identified three people at this restaurant or bar or event that to me could possibly be a threat to me or to somebody else or whatever, but they are possibly someone that is up to nefarious deeds here. And so it reinforces that I identified them. I'm going to watch them. I'm more vigilant. It also reinforces why I have my weapon with me, why I train, why I stay vigilant, why I, I am more aware so I think it's a very good positive reinforcement of doing these things as opposed to just going out there and thinking, okay, yep, I need to be more aware today. Yep, I need to keep my phone down today. Yep, I need to do this. Um, I think when you identify that, hey, I narrowly, not narrowly necessarily escaped these three people, but I identified three potential problems that I could have faced today. I'm not going to because of the actions that I'm taking right now and avoidance that I'm doing, my projection that I'm doing. And if I have to, I've already gone through the orientation phase here. I know where my threats are, and I can quickly get to action if I need to, and that's where I rely on my skills. So I think that everybody really should go back and listen to this exercise again or go to the cheat sheet that we have and go ahead and look over the notes from uh, from the show notes here and, and, and actually do this. Plan, you know, especially if it's at an event, not just walking down the street, but I think it's, it's easier if you are at something where you, um, you can look at a, a crowd of people that they are not going to be noticed, but can really kind of pinpoint those ones who match your description, Mike, for, um, for what they're, they're doing here. So I think it's a, that's an awesome exercise for everybody uh, to do. Um, 
Listen, everybody, uh, this, this, yeah. there's a whole uh, lot yeah. of stuff. I mean, please, this is, I know this has been a longer broadcast than we normally do, but there's so much information packed in here. Um, we're going to go ahead and put this into the show notes so you have an easy reference guide for us. So go ahead and pick that up if you can, but definitely go over and check out, um, more of Mike's training because I've been a big fan of Mike's, Mike's self-defense training as well as, I mean, he has fitness programs. I mean, he's got a, a really, a lot of stuff out there. It's because he walks the talk. It's because he's been in a lot of high profile positions that require him to be at the top of his game and know all those shortcuts, not necessarily to practice this technique for 10,000 times to master it, or, you know, my master can beat up your master. or He's got the best monkey ninja <laughs> dragon kick. Um, he, it's all based upon practicality for the situation and instant response, because when you are a high level executive protection specialist, um, you, you're always on call. And you have to always be at the top of your game. And so Mike's shortcuts really are very, very powerful. He knows what he's talking about. Go check out his training over his website at www.realselfdefensetactics.com. And until our next broadcast, this is Jeff Anderson saying prepare, train, and survive. We hope you've enjoyed the show. You can help us out by rating our podcast on iTunes and leaving a comment. You can check us out on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Modern Combat and Survival. And don't forget to claim your free subscription to Modern Combat and Survival magazine at www.moderncombatandsurvival.com. Lock and load. And we'll see you next time. This has been Modern Combat and Survival.